This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome to the first installment of the Winter 2018 UC Santa Barbara Innovator Stories series. I'm John Greathouse, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Greathouse. Our sponsor tonight is Invoca. Invoca connects phone calls and conversations to buyers' digital journeys. So what that translates to in the old days of the Internet, you might go online, you'd see an ad, you'd see something that looked interesting, and then you'd say, I think I'm going to call. You'd pick up the phone and you'd start interacting with someone on the other end, which is fine. The problem with that is the advertiser that paid for that ad that spurred your phone call never gets attribution. Uh, and so it's very difficult in that old world to know, well, what ad triggered that phone call? Invoca has solved that problem. So they've connected those digital display ads, those search ads to a phone call, and they allow companies, they allow digital advertisers to drive quality calls into the call center that result in sales. So companies from Mitsubishi to Quicken Loans to OpenTable, there's hundreds of companies that use their technology. They're all using that technology to drive profitable calls into their call center and to ring their cash register. So if you want calls, check out Invoca. Tonight I have Brian uh, Fox with me today. I'm really excited to talk to him. He is a longtime computer programmer. He's really a pioneer in the computer programming field. He's an entrepreneur, he's an author, he's an investor, uh, and he's a free software advocate. Back in the day, Brian authored the Terrapin logo for Apple IIe. That was back in the early 80s. And then he began working with Richard Stallman to help build the Free Software Foundation and Project GNU at MIT. While working with Mr. Stallman, Brian authored a lot of, a lot of code that's still being utilized to this day. Uh, info, make info, and he contributed heavily to text info, uh, to the text info documentation system. His read line and history libraries are still widely used in a variety of applications. But he might be best known for his GNU Bash shell, which runs on, I would say millions, but many millions of computing devices worldwide. And it's everything from Mac OS, so any, any device that's running Mac OS, to very um, unusual and vertical and, and specific devices, such as um, digital menus at restaurants, gas, uh, devices that run gas station ads. And my favorite is cow milking systems. So if you're into cow milking systems, you have Brian to thank um, for that success. He also built the first interactive online, online banking system in the U.S. for Wells Fargo back in the mid-'90s, uh, and he created an open-source election system back in 2008, and we'll talk about that. He's also a prolific angel investor with a portfolio of companies that includes VWC, RIS, Jamcard, Roaming Messenger, Supply Solution, and Shangbai. He earned his computer science degree from MIT, but what I love about it is, even though it was back in the day, he had the foresight to focus on artificial intelligence. So his emphasis of his computer science degree at MIT was artificial intelligence. And as if that wasn't enough, he's also a very gifted musician. We're very lucky to have Brian as part of our Santa Barbara ecosystem. He gives very freely of his time, events such as this, helping startups when they need advice, all the way from Santa Barbara up to the Bay Area, down to LA. He's definitely a giver, uh, and every, every great startup community um, loves their givers. Let's give Brian a very warm welcome to our stage. again for coming. I really appreciate it. Why wouldn't I come with an intro like that? <laughs> I'm like, who is that guy? I want to hang out with I him. I know. I always feel that way too when I get introduced. I'm like, really? But I've actually said before that don't sit out in the audience. I mean, Brian has, is an amazing guy. You're going to learn more about him. 
But, but when you hear intros like that, just understand that's that person's greatest hits, right? We don't go over the foibles or the missteps. And so I actually gave a whole talk one time in front of a pretty large group about, they gave my intro, and I said, yes, that's all true, but, and then I told them all about the in-betweens. <laughs> like, in between this and this, there was this, and then yeah. there was this. So there's always ups and downs, um, except for Brian. No downs, right? <laughs> so one of the themes in your life, and I look at all the different projects you've worked on, yeah. it seems like one recurring theme is this idea of freedom. So freedom is something that, that, that embodies itself in a lot of the things you've done. What, do you, what was the inspiration for that? Was it somebody in your family, or is it just in your personality? Or what, what do you attribute that to? Um, that's a great question, and I, I, think it's, I think it's true. Freedom of information, of information flow, has kind of always been important to me. And uh, growing up in my family, my father's a, a physicist. And at dinner, we'd sit around the table and we'd have conversations about things. And it was very important to make sure your voice was heard. Mm. There were four siblings. You had a there. large family, right? This is four siblings. Yeah. Relatively large. Yeah. And um, yeah, important to make sure your voice was heard. And so you wanted to make sure that what you said mattered. And so mm -hmm. you thought a lot. Everybody in the family did this, not just me. We'd think a lot about what we wanted to say and we'd say it. And um, I was very fortunate to grow up in Brookline, Massachusetts. It had one of the best uh, school systems in the country. And the are teachers you, are there. Are you a product of public school? I'm a product of public school. So am I. So am I. Let's hear for Brookline High School. <laughs> All right. Done. You got him to clap. That's good. It's that commanding presence. Yeah, I can do that. <laughs> so, I'm, so I was going to ask you a bit more about, your, about your, your childhood. So I know you were exposed to computers at an early age. You were fortunate. Yeah. Um, but you also took advantage of it. A lot of people get that exposure, but they don't take the next step. So what was it like in the Fox household? You said you, know, you, had, you had siblings, you had kind of that rivalry to get your voice heard. Right. Did your parents encourage entrepreneurial tendencies? Did they encourage your technology thirst? What, how did that go down? Um, my, my, my dad was a physicist, and so um, you know, sometimes you would ask a parent to help you with something. You know, you'd say, gee, I don't know how to do this. And they'd say, well, let me, let me help you do that. My dad would say, here's how you do that. And he, he would kind of do that for everything mm. um, because he was also very excited about learning and about absorbing new information. Right. And uh, we, had, we did have a teletype in the basement. He worked for Bolperinic and Newman. He was like employee number 14 or something at the time. Uh, and we had a teletype machine in the basement which made lots of clacking noises. And if you held the control key down and hit G, it made a big dinging sound. It says right on the key, bell. So I would go <laughs> down and hit that. I was about six years You're old. Ring the bell. Hit that. Ring that bell. Ring that bell. And so... Uh, unlike many of the people that were my age, I was exposed to computers from, from a very young age. So I didn't have that kind of um, terror that, that a, a lot of people right. our age had, you know, growing up saying, what, ha what if I touch it and yeah, I break exactly. it? Exactly. Right, I was right. like, let's play with it. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to break it. What, yeah. Why did your dad have that in the basement? What was he using it for? <laughs> well, he, he was at um, Bolperinic and Newman, and they, they had the first few teletypes. And he managed to convince someone that he should have it. To work from home or? Not, not to work, kind of to work from home, not really. He was, um, he was composing music. Ah. And Marvin Minsky uh, was also part of this process along with another guy. Uh, doesn't matter. But um, the, the music was played by running paper tape through the teletype machine. Wow. <laughs> and that generated the actual... Uh, pitches. So probably some of the earliest it's, electronic music. It's, it's very early, yeah. Early synthesizer. Wow. He must have been pretty persuasive to get his company to say, yeah, sure, take that very expensive yeah. piece of equipment. Yeah, or he stole it. <laughs> or that, or that. So, so I, when I think about that, um, that yeah. 
you know, your early exposure to computers, I mean, you, know, you could be a younger person watching this all over the world or sitting here in this audience, and you might say, yeah, well, you know, that's great for Brian, he's mm. older than me, and he had that opportunity. Don't have that attitude. So what, because there's always new opportunities. So what would you say for kids now? No, they can't go back in time and be in the mid-70s mid and learn computers, but what can they do right now? Well, kids, I mean, I'm doing this now. I'm, you're, you're right, I'm not a kid anymore. Right. But, but this is what I've done my whole life. I keep trying to find out what's the next thing I'm supposed to do, you know. Uh, and right now I'm working on something called the ORCID Protocol. We'll talk right. about yeah, that, I will. guess, in a little bit. Yep. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it has an incentivization based in cryptocurrency. And cryptocurrency, as many of you people know, is, you know, Bitcoin... Uh, Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies. These, this is really the new way of doing decentralized yep. transactions, and I think that that is a place where you will see a lot of um, innovation. So you're because that was the, we are still going to talk about Orchid, um, yeah. but something I was going to touch upon later. Let's just talk about it right now. So what? How how would a young student process that? What, they, what you just said? Okay, great. He's talking about crypto. How would they get closer to, to, what would you suggest they do to get closer to what that really means? And how could they learn and get their hands dirty? So there, there are a lot of books out there, and, and cryptocurrency is not, is not just about um, technology. It's, it's really about finance, and it's about understanding how commerce and capitalism work. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a wide range of areas in which you can, and marketing is a heavy part of what's happening right now in cryptocurrency. Sure. There's a large uh, number of places where you can kind of get connected up to what's happening with cryptocurrency, and I think that since it's kind of the future of the way finance is going, everyone's going to have to understand what it means to their lives. I mean, your medical records will be there. Yep. Your, uh, your education is part, it will be part of cryptocurrency and a ledger. Yep. So blockchain, I think, is really... Th that's, that's where I direct students. So um, I, talk, I have this class that I talk about the future of entrepreneurship. And one of the things we talk about, obviously, and every year we talk more about crypto cryptocurrencies. And I, I feel like understanding blockchain, if I had to pick one or the other, really understanding that and maybe getting involved in it in some way, because it has such a broader application. I mean, blockchain, as you mentioned, is used in medical records. It's going to be used in so many things that need right. authentication, right? right? Um, Two-factor authentication or third-party authentication. So anyway, that's my suggestion is just start reading about this stuff. I listened to a great podcast yesterday about, um, I think it's called The Crypto Cousins, got a, about 100,000 people that listen to it. Mm -hmm. And if you just want to learn about what's happening, they interview yeah. players. Let me throw one other thing out that I'm very um, proud of and interested uh, to share. I got a call, uh, actually I got an email on Friday. This is now Tuesday, we're taping this. Um, and one of my students reached out to me. He's, he's looking at a $30 million cryptocurrency transaction. And he was a student probably four years ago sitting in this classroom. Yeah. And he's saying it's going to be between a thirty and a hundred million dollar ICO. And he's about a twenty-five year old kid. Yep. Going, what do I? I get the tiger by the tail. What do I do here? So, and it's if you really want to jump into something big in early stage, I'd yeah. say crypto. We'll talk more about Orchid. Yeah. So let's go back. Let's jump back. So I thought it was. I loved it. I even told my wife about your grandfather, who yeah. was the artist for for the Monopoly Man. So you guys know the Monopoly Man. Yeah. Um, I He's, his nickname is Rich Uncle Pennybags, right. but he's the guy with the monocle and sort of that archetype of the guy with the top hat. How did that come about? Well, and was he an influence on you when you were growing up? Did you have a relationship with he, him? He was an influence on me growing up because he was a spectacular human being. Mm -hmm. um, he passed away relatively young. He passed away when I was about six years old. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he was only 60. Wow. Um, 
I can't tell you how it came about that he did that. I mean, I can give you the information. Was he an artist by trade? He's, he's a commercial artist, and he would do fine art in his, uh, in his spare time. Yep. I have some of his art in my house. It's quite good. He was well-recognized. He had stuff in museums, in fact. But in order to make ends meet, he was a commercial artist, and I think he got paid $50 to oh. draw Mr. Paybacks. Wow. <laughs> Yikes. The, Parker Brothers had already had acquired the game, and they already had a character, but they didn't like the way the character looked, and so he redrew the character, and that became the wow. actual character. Wow. And then my, my cousin um, uh, really worked hard to make sure that that actually came out and got recognized. Um, nobody was looking for money. They just thought, right. hey, right. you know, he drew that. Right. That's important. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and it's funny because when you Google that fact, your cousin did a good job because it is, it is validated yeah. all throughout the internet. Every game of Monopoly seems to mention that, which is yeah. very, cool. very cool. Good for him. So is this your dad's dad, the musician's dad? This is dad? my dad's dad. So he was a musician. Your dad was a musician. Your grandfather was an artist. Was an artist. That obviously flowed through, um, flowed through to you. And I've always thought people that write really great code or artists too are gamers. I've had the, the founder of Creative um, Arts here, and you know, yeah. he said he approached gaming as an art and really wanted to reward the game, the game designers as artists. I think there's a big connection between um, the types of problem solving that you do in computer science and, and the creation of music. Mm -hmm. I think that they're both, I mean, I think there's a lot of creative energy in almost anything that's, that's being done, whether it's building a company or writing software. But I think that the connection to music is really strong, and I see it. Um, Marvin Minsky, for example, was one of the best um, improvisers. He would sit down at the piano. Marvin Minsky was the father of artificial intelligence and the founder of the MIT AI Lab. Uh, he would sit down at the piano and play pieces that were Bach reminiscent mm. that he was composing kind of in the in moment. In real time. Yeah. yeah. It was really very interesting. Wow. Yeah. And he was, a, he was coding as well, early coding? He was definitely an early coder. Yeah. Uh, he was a mathematician. I think he, he, I think he has two PhDs. He's gone now. He had two PhDs in math. Wow. Solved two unsolvable problems. <laughs> <laughs> math is not a young science like computer science. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's right. not many unsolvable problems left. Right. So we're going to take the first student question in a moment. Um, but but uh, just get ready there. So when you were eight, you were involved in this Wally Furzig experiment with new logo language. Yeah. So Tell my me dad. About that. And my, then and then how did, did that impact what you did later with the Terabin logo language? Or uh, I, kind of, I think. So what what happened with that? What was the story? So my dad was a Bulperanic Newman, and Wally Furzig and a couple of other people, um, uh, Seymour Papert, well known for his um, uh, educational methods, a whole set of educational methods. They were trying to create a language that would be similar to Lisp, the kind of um, engineering programming language of the time, similar to that, but that could be used by very young people, people six, seven, eight, nine years old. And uh, they came up with this logo language, which had some of the same properties of this Lisp language, but um, was easier to understand and easier to read. And they needed to, they, they had just kind of completed it, and they needed to test it on somebody, and my dad volunteered me. So I went to work with them and sat down in a room with this teletype that was running this program that they had written in Logo. Right. And, of course, one of the first things I did was hold down the control key and hit G because I like the bell to ring. <laughs> and, and for those of you who don't know, the control G is also abort. So the program stopped running immediately. <laughs> and, then, and then I was terrified. Oh, no, I, I broke it, and I, I tried to make it work. And as I typed things, it would talk back to me. I was mm. talking to Logo. Oh, wow. And so I would say, you know, help. And it says, define help. I'm like, define help. And then Wally came running in the room and said, how do you know to type all this stuff? I said, it says to type it right here. It says what to do. Yeah, yeah but so, so you were an outlier. You probably weren't the right person to test that software. Like, let's get this genius of a kid and see how it works. I, I don't think I was a genius, but it was, you know, it was ding, ding, ding. That's not really that. 
genius life. Well, you know yeah. what I'm saying. Obviously, <laughs> yes. you, you proved later in life. I'm sure you were quite bright when you were eight um, as well. So then, so then, the, the, then there was coincidentally the Terrapin logo language. And you were still very young, right? Were you so in then, your teens? Or? Yeah, so in, uh, when I was 17, I started uh, uh, programming things on the uh, TRS-80 at the lo- local Radio Shack. It's a yep. little single-piece computer that just come out. And then I came, I was born and raised in so Boston. So you would literally go to the Radio Shack place, or did yeah. you buy one? No, I'd go to Radio Shack. And they just, they I just couldn't let buy you, a computer. <laughs> and they just let you, like, hang out and code? Or? Yeah, because they didn't have any demonstration programs, and I was making, like, little dots appear wow. on the screen, and they were like, that's cool. The, that kid's making the computer look like it does something. So they didn't know how to use it, right? Nobody knew. Radio Shack, Radio Shack used to sell vacuum tubes. Right, you'd bring your vacuum right. tube in from your broken television right. set. Your television set, you'd put it in a little thing they and They don't know it. what television is. Yeah, exactly. I heard that earlier. Yeah. yeah. Think YouTube, sort of. So I, I, I went out to California from Boston to play some music, and then um, I fell asleep while I was playing after about three years and decided maybe I should do something else. And I came back to Boston and I, I needed some computer time. I wanted to use computers. And I said, is it okay if I use these computers at the school and I'll help you teach your classes? I asked uh, some grade school people. And they said, sure, teach my math class and now you're in charge of gifted and talented students <laughs> doing this computer stuff. So the language that was being taught was Logo huh. at the time. And there were bugs in the software and would crash all the time. So one day I was in there literally fixing some bugs in the software and the uh, owner of the company, the Terrapin company, came in and saw that and said, hey, do you want a job? I said, yes. <laughs> so so wow. that was how I got involved with the Terrapin logo. And then the people I worked with at Terrapin were also students at MIT and the MIT AI Lab. So there was a lot of mm. crossover and so there. that led to all of the work you did at MIT. That's correct. So, I mean, there's an important story embedded there. And I, I mean, I am going to get to the first student's question. But there's a very important story embedded in what Brian just said. You see, he put himself out there because he wanted to get close to computers, didn't have access to them otherwise, and he agreed to teach young people in the course of that. And that led to all kinds of great things. Yeah. And that, it's not luck, really. It's not serendipity, really. It's putting yourself in the right situation to have good things happen to you. If you had sat at home and been like bummed out because you didn't have a computer, you wouldn't have had all those opportunities. So put yourself out there, volunteer, ask how you can help. Uh, give first, and then a lot of times it comes back to you. So let's... Yeah, get, get a, that's the way I like to say that is get a vision and follow the process. And every step you take, if it's going in that direction, it's the right step. And if it's going away from there, don't take it. It's not worth it. Yeah. And otherwise you get stuck in, in a side rut. Hey, this is a great job. I'm doing marketing. Really? I thought you wanted to be a computer scientist. Yeah. You know, so. Right, right, right. And time goes like that. You think you're doing it for six months and two years later you wake up. I still think I'm 19. <laughs> you look 19. So <laughs> we'll take the first question. What moment during your professional career drove you to entrepreneurship since you already experienced a lot of success with companies like Wells Fargo, or was it something that you always had in mind? Um, I'm a terrible employee. <laughs> so if anybody, me too. <laughs> if anybody wants to hire me, I advise you against it. <laughs> um, uh, that's, that's actually the truth. Uh, I, I just... I'm not a very good employee. I, I see solutions. to pro- People say, we have this horrible problem, and here's the solution. I'm like, here's another solution. And they're like, well, we wanted to do it this way. I'm like, yeah, really good. I, I just don't work that well in those circumstances. And so I, I've been consulting since uh, I was 20 years old. Yeah, I mean, you and the Wells, Wells Fargo thing, I was a consultant to Wells Fargo. I, we built Wells Fargo's online banking. The, the first prototype was done in three months. You know, we, 
<laughs> we didn't do the kind of standard thing where people want to make sure they have their jobs and it looks a certain way. And I wreaked havoc in there. It was bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you've been an entrepreneur really your whole life, your whole professional yeah. life. Yes, that's correct. Um, and I think that's one of the one of the things a lot of folks that are that are younger need to figure out is. You look at sexy now, and there's all these movies about it, and there's nothing sexy about being an entrepreneur. It's a lot of hard work. It's no, brutal. It's you don't know where your next you know, paycheck's coming from. It makes much more sense just to get a job, right? I mean, you know, you get a paycheck, you can go home, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, Klaus Schauser said, hey, Brian, do you want to work with me and John at this brand new company we're starting up? I said, no, 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 I'm going to do my own thing. You, you wouldn't have made anybody. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, that, that's happened. Counts. There are... The number of uh, opportunities that I did not uh, just take the straight road and say, hey, financial success is pretty large, yep. pretty large. But there's also been some successes along the oh, way. Of course. So, yeah. And I would say the fact that you followed your, your passion and your heart and, and really understood early on that I'm not a good employee, therefore why put myself or my employer in that position? It's not good for the employer. Yeah. yeah. So self-awareness is really, really the key. Get that yeah. self-awareness mm -hmm. as early as you can. You're going to be happier, no doubt about it. So I'm going to ask you about shell shock. Um, that was only about three years ago. So, yeah. well, you can describe it better than I can. So, so were you surprised, and what, were you kind of almost proud? Like, wow, somebody hacked my code! Like all those years later. I mean, I was, no, I still think it's hysterically funny. So I, I wrote the Bash shell before there was an internet, and then 27 years later, somebody said, "Oh, there's a bug if you use the Bash shell as an internet server." There's a bug, and it could wreak havoc on the So internet. why didn't you anticipate that? And, it, and, then, <laughs> and then I was specifically asked, the New York Times called me up, and they, and they said to me specifically, why didn't you anticipate that? Oh, come on. And I said, aha, my plan worked. Yeah, that's right, right. It only took 27 years. <laughs> exactly. You had that long vision. Exactly, because everybody knows their software that you write when you're in your 20s will be used for 27 years. Exactly. Yeah. It's going to be in millions There's of devices. There's tons of pieces of software out there that are 27 years old. Right, used every day by that's, millions of people. That's ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. That's why. I, when I read about that, I thought that's got to be like a badge of pride. Like, who was, else would have their software hacked after twenty? Okay, so I will tell you about the badge of pride. So there's a there's an award called the Pony Awards, um, and it's spelled P W N Y. P W N is a acronym, not an acronym, a, a word that means to uh, to take over and control somebody else's computer. And so the Pony people um, award give you an award for the best bug if that, that somebody has found or the most heinous bug or whatever. So um, a friend of mine was at these awards and they said, we now are going to give an award for the most overrated bug uh, <laughs> this year. And it was shell shock. Uh, and then they said, does anybody here, you know, work with the guy? And then my friend said, okay, fine. So I now have in my office a little, looks like a little, I look like a, uh, what do they call those, a brownie? <laughs> The brony guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a little horsey thing in my office now, but that's the pony award. I'm very awesome. proud of that. You should be. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> Most overrated bug. We'll take the next student's question. Um, so from your involvement with ORCID Protocol and the National Association of Voting Officials, it's evident that you really like to combine your work with your passions. So my question is, how important is social activism to you, and how did you decide to get involved with free and uncensored internet usage? How did I say get involved with Luch? I'm sorry. With free and uncensored internet usage. Uh -huh. Well, uh, I feel like I've been involved with free and uncensored, uncensored information sharing, you know, certainly since my early 20s. Um, and ORCID is, a, ORCID is something brand new that, uh, that I and four other co-founders are working on. 
It's um, a replacement, not a replacement, it's a new internet. Um, the existing internet right now, all your information flows through central locations. The infrastructure is controlled by uh, Cox and Time Warner and, and BBN Planet. And as an end result, uh, these, these organizations know your name, your address, your phone number, your social security number, your credit card, and every single website that you're going to. And now, with the change that's been taking uh, places with net neutrality and privacy laws, these organizations can sell that information, not even just in aggregate, but specifically. Somebody could buy, in the future, John Greathouse's browsing history. It's really exciting. <laughs> um, and, and incognito mode doesn't help. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that really bothers us. And uh, one of the things we thought we could do is, is not have all the information flow in the clear through all these central points, but instead bounce from place to place. So instead of me going from my house straight to Cox, I kind of go from my house to John's house, although I don't know I'm going to John's house because it's anonymous, and then it goes from John's house to Alex's house, and then it goes from Alex's house to Wikipedia. And that matters a lot if I'm... For example, a Chinese national living in China, and I want to simply see a Facebook page or a Wikipedia page, and I'm being blocked by the, the Great Firewall of China. Great. This is the type of technology that could help you circumvent that so, so that you can do simple information sharing. And I'm, and I'm going to confess my ignorance here. It's easy for me to do that. How, would, how do people use Orchid? I haven't used it. Is it just as simple as going to, do I have to download a new browser? Do I, what do I have to do? So we're still, we're still in the process of building it. Okay. The, the alpha... Uh, but now exist. I don't feel so bad about not using it. <laughs> the alpha does exist, and the way it presents is pretty simple. You, you download something called Orchid, and then you turn it on, and when it's on, you're using it, and when it's off, you're not. So, um, so uh, you can use any browser. You can use any browser. You're, it's, it it it's, modifies the way your internet is routed. So it's controlling where, yeah, where that right. ISP address is, essentially, versus, versus being its own browser and being right. sort of its own... Uh, siloed off part of the internet. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Oh, okay, good. And there's a cryptocurrency component, a blockchain component to this, which is that um, why, why is John going to let me use his internet connection? Well, it's because I'm paying him. And I'm paying him anonymously, and he's receiving those, uh, that, that payment. So everybody who helps me to do what I need to do on the internet or using this new internet platform um, gets paid by the money that I put out there. So, so if I join Orchid and don't ever turn it on... I, I'm going to get paid by, because other people are going to be using my, my node or my ISP. That's correct. If you turn yourself on as a relay, right. but you don't necessarily use your computer to do browsing, right. and, and in fact, I'll tell you about something. All entrepreneurs think about this. Um, uh, if you do that, then you'll be earning these tokens. They're called ORCID tokens. Um, in, do they in fact, convert into cryptocurrency? And then, well, they are cryptocurrency, okay. and so they can be traded not today, but soon, they can be traded on the cryptocurrency exchanges, and of course you can convert them from crypto into fiat, so dollars right, right, or euros right. or whatever, you, what have you. Um, the thing that you're describing, we think, is going to be so important to the success of Orchid that we're building a very small, I'm personally building a very small version of Orchid that can be placed into a, a device that we call the Orchid Egg. You pick up this Orchid Egg at Starbucks or maybe at Target, maybe somebody gave it to you or you bought it, either one doesn't matter, you plug it into your wall, configure it with your phone, forget about it. Now you're helping this new internet. You're helping people around the world get to places that they couldn't get to before. And we have some, some controls built into the protocol. So if you 
are providing services for somebody to go out to the internet, you might say, I don't want somebody to go to kittyporn.com or buyheroin.com. Oh, so so you, you can. Is you there can. a buyheroin.com? No, <laughs> don't look that up. Um, so you can control it as a, as a, you can control where your node can go? You can, you can have a whitelist and say only these locations are allowed. So somebody might be extremely restrictive and say Wikipedia, Facebook, and Twitter, and that's it. Got it. Um, and they probably won't be able to charge as much for that right. service because they're well, limited access to the internet. Yeah. And somebody in Sweden might say, I'm for free speech in every way, shape, and form, and you can go to any website you want to. So is that going to allow people in China to get around the, the firewall there? Well, don't hold me to this, but yes. Okay. <laughs> wow. You heard it first. <laughs> You're going to be getting a call from Chinese officials in about 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. So we, so we talked a little bit about um, cryptocurrency before. Um, there's been a lot of fluctuation in the market lately. I think that's kind of to be expected. We've had fluctuation in the stock market lately. Yep. Um, it always makes the news, you know, sort of the outliers always make the news. But what's your long-term view on on the currencies themselves, and do you, do you, are you placing a mental bet or, or even a financial bet on any particular, like is it Bitcoin or is it Ethereum? Is there one that you really, really think is the winner? I know we both agree the technology is going to win. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the technology is going to win. This is very early on yes. in, in this technology to, to think that we had AltaVista before we had Google. Right. And AltaVista was a great idea. Yeah. And Google had better execution and they did something, some things better and now Google's the big winner in the centralized search space. Um, we had GeoCities before we had MySpace, before we had Friendster, before we had exactly. Facebook. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So um, I, I don't think, I don't personally think that Bitcoin is the cryptocurrency and I don't think Ethereum, which has many benefits and advantages over Bitcoin, is the cryptocurrency. Right. And Definity, which probably nobody's heard of, which is the next one after Ethereum, built by the same types of people. That one's great too, but I don't think it's the final one. So uh, my, my view on crypto is crypto at large is really important. As I said before, I think it's going to take over everything. Yep. Um, and, and I think that it, it's important that, that people pay enough attention to crypto to kind of understand how it works. Not the deep, nitty-gritty details. You yeah. don't need to know how the fuel injector in your car works. Right? Yeah, right. But, but to know how, um, how crypto is being used and, and what makes money work in this sense. It's a, it's a very interesting thing, finance. So are the, are the crypto, uh, is the crypto community using Orchid? Are they an early adopter of Orchid? Or have the, you targeted them as a, as a community? Have they come to you or have you gone to them? The crypto community loves Orchid. Um, we, we don't stop receiving uh, requests for more information about it. To, to kind of put this in perspective, um, I think that there's about 40,000 individuals that invest um, into ICOs. It, you would think that there's hundreds of millions, but there's not. It's right. about 40,000. Right. And that represents billions and billions of dollars. Right? Um, we have over 50,000 requests on our website. So we've definitely kind of got the attention of the crypto community, right. which, I think is, which I think is good. So ICOs are, are sort of the crypto equivalent to an IPO, or initial public offering. It's a, way to, it's a way to raise money, in this case cryptocurrency, for typically for other crypto startups. Um, we'll take uh, the next student's question. 
you worked in numerous different industries from banking to politics, creating the first web-based banking program to um, an open source election system. What is your favorite industry to collaborate with and why? It's uh, a great question. Um, I prefer to collaborate with people-oriented organizations. So something that actually affects people's lives, um, not, not just their financial success, but kind of anything that's more widespread. I, I like to... I, I like to be in a position... I like to be able to, to, to help people, if possible. Uh-huh. And that sounds really weird, but it's, it's kind of true, you know... It, it, Instead of building a bowling alley, I'd rather build food kitchens. So right. I actually work. But uh, there's a company that I'm invested in right now that is. It's all about feeding hungry people. That's what it does. It doesn't do anything else. And we're using technology to kind of understand more about what we need to do to feed those people and to connect people who want to help with that process into that process. So you're an investor in that company. I'm an investor in that company. We do. We the, my uh, my organization, Opus Logica, does. Um, Technology investing, so we're like a venture technologist. Sometimes we put in capital, but mostly we put in technology. Do you are you looking for a double bottom line there, where you want a financial return and a social return? Are you saying I really just want the social return? Uh, I need the financial return in order to To allow me to to, yeah keep doing the social return and also to get people involved. You need to say look, this is great for the world. A, f- a friend of mine came to me, a friend of mine who you might know, Jonathan Siegel. Yeah. Jonathan Siegel came to me a long time ago, and he said, you know, I'm, I want to work with you. I'm doing this thing. And we said, okay, we're going to interview you. And I said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he says, without any hesitation, a philanthropist. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's the best answer I've ever heard. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. You, right? Be in a position to help others. Make sure... Put your own mask on first before you put on the next mask. Right. And what's funny about that, if it's a younger person might hear that and think, well, okay, well, I'll, I'll think about that in 30 years. But you can be a philanthropist with your time right now. He was, right? 20, he was 28 when he said that. Uh, yeah. So it's not always about writing a check. <laughs> right. It's about maybe, in your case, adding some technical expertise into the equation, maybe some hardware expertise. Maybe it is writing a check. Maybe it's your time. It can be all of those things. But it's not just right. We always think of you know, the, the, the Monopoly guy with the monocle writing a big check. Yep. Uh, but that's, that's really, the again, that's the top of the pyramid of the people that have extreme amounts of money. There's a lot of other roads besides that. Well, good for you. Well, it, it shows in all of your stuff. I mean, the, going all the way back to GNU and the free aspect of, of software and making sure that there's accountability in the software writing. That's yep. one thing I, I really liked about it. I heard, heard you say that before. And you, were, you were talking about the private versus public. And one of the aspects of the public software, or free software, open software yep. that you like is that real accountability of, Hey, it's one thing to write code in the back room of a company that only the people at your company will see, and they probably won't see it because it's source code and it'll get compiled, versus, oh, shoot, here's my code, and millions of people are probably going to read this. And Yeah, every peer on the planet. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. That right? results in better code, right? It results much, in... Much better code. You, you, it's very interesting to me. I mean, it's now they're all ingrained habits. There's no laziness in my code writing. Right. There's never right. a place where I go, I'll finish that letter. It's, it's always, oh, this has to be right. This has to be the right way to do it, and I have to think about it that way. And that's, um, I think that's good. I think it, I think it really creates quality. How, how and I can... expect quality in others. Exactly. Well, it's, a peer, it's that accountability of your yeah. peers. How can young people, not everyone in this room or listening is, is, a, is, a, is a coder or wants to be a software coder, but the ones that have that proclivity, what can they do right now to get involved in the open source community? What, what would you suggest? Ah, 
Open source is really easy. Free software is really easy to get involved in. Find your own scratch, find your own itch and scratch it is kind of the, the core thing there. But if you just want to get your feet wet, you know, you're, you're scared, right? There's titans of industry out there doing stuff. Linus Torvalds is writing across. How am I supposed to do right, something in right, there? Right. There's always something that needs to be done. And the simplest thing, it doesn't have to be complicated, the simplest thing is the best way to get started. So you, you see that um, this front page needs to be translated into another language. Do the translation. Right. Write the code for that. Say, hey, I've, I've done the translation, or I found some misspellings in your code, and here's the, here are the changes for that. And, and as soon as you start getting accepted and you realize that this is part of, you're part of a community doing things, you can start doing more and more things in these. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of projects out there that need help. Right. And there's hundreds of thousands of projects waiting to get started by everybody who's interested in, in open source and, and getting involved. And, and it's all about work product today when you're getting hired, right? You said, like, when I was, back in my day, it was a resume and, yeah. and, and try to be glib in the interview. That's right. But now it's like, well, what have you done? Yeah. It's, and if, so if you can say, well, I've contributed to this open source community and right. my code's been accepted by this group and I'm still learning. Or if you're a writer and, and you say, you know, look, I've written these blogs, a travel blog when I was in college, whatever it is. It's a work product that someone that's thinking about hiring you can evaluate as opposed to looking at you across the table and wondering if maybe you'll be a good employee. That's correct. So come into your come into these job conversations with work product. Yep. Including when you go talk to the developer. Give them something concrete. So I want to ask you two questions, uh, a couple questions about music because I mm -hmm. love music. I'm not a musician. I've always I've managed a band and I've always been on the fringes, but I'm, but I'm, I can't play anything other than the radio. Um, so <laughs> they know what a radio is. I, I didn't yeah. think they would. Yeah, it's an app on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> Has music, can you think of, of how music has impacted your startup or your entrepreneurial life? Are there lessons, like you're an amazing um, bass player, I'm sure you play other instruments. Was it the discipline to learn? Were there things, lessons you can draw into your startup world? For a long time in my life, I kept my music separate from my computer world because I wanted to be respected in the computer world as a computer programmer and I wanted to be respected in the music world <laughs> as a musician. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, if you... Nowadays, right, I wrote Bash, so if I go somewhere to, to play music and it says Brian Fox, the author of Bash, is playing, you know, all these techies show up and they don't really care about the music. <laughs> so I really tried to keep them separate. But more recently, in the last 10 years or so, I've really started to kind of uh, put those things together. And it's been, it's been exciting. I mean, I'm able to take... So, so my approach to building a business is what I did when I built my first band and made albums. And that was that was important to me and my approach to um, open source collaboration that shows up in my musical collaborations mm. um, uh, and I think the other thing that really works well is in order to be in order to play well with others you have to listen you know right. it's not about the production as much as the consumption you really have to listen to what's happening around you and I think that's also true if you're going to work with others inside of an organization or a company, yeah. or if you want somebody to invest in you, you should listen to what they have to say. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean you don't have your own mind and you have your own idea of where you're going, but there's a lot of valuable information available in, 
in the sharing of information and collaborations. Yep, so. and you have and overlying that has to be mutual respect. Right. Right. I can listen, 100%. and if I don't respect you, it's not it's not going to really help either of us. And so you got to put yourself in a position with musicians that you're that you respect exactly. and that you're learning from. Exactly. And they should be hopefully learning from you as well. Yep. That's where I think that's really where the magic yep. happens. So this is a little off the wall question, maybe a little random, but. Um, and we'll get to the next question after this. So when I, I'm, I like to write, I'm not the world's greatest writer, but I enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when I find when I'm just really, really in the groove and, and just enjoying the process and feel like the work product is pretty good, it's often when I'm listening to instrumental music. Mm -hmm. So like I, and it'll be slack key sometimes for Hawaiian music. Sometimes it's um, Scott Joplin, you know, doing, uh -huh. it, it's just ragtime. It's, it differs, yeah. but it's that same feeling. Mm -hmm. And I almost feel like I'm, typing I'm not but I almost feel like I'm typing in right. tune with the music right do you listen to music when you code and if so what do you listen to yeah no I, I really no um dude I, I had that whole big build up I have it's, be <laughs> it's beautiful and I'm, and I'm really thrilled actually that you do that it's fantastic you right? do it in yeah. silence <laughs> um I I'm one of the guys that needs silence a lot of programmers listen to music while mm. they program and it works for them almost in the same way mm. as, as you described they kind of get into a zone and then the rest of it just happens magically um, that's that's not so true for me and and, uh, and you're a I, musician that's well I have me. I have this embarrassing truth about being a musician if you put a bass in my hands and I start playing a groove you can talk to me all you want but I sound like a moron mm. <laughs> so you can you can say anything you want and the information will go in but my response will be like it's almost impossible for me to produce um, to produce verbally while I'm producing wow. musically, it's, it's really it's very interesting. So I, I and sometimes at, uh, at one point in my life I was singing pop music while I was playing the bass. I was capable of doing that, but I really didn't know what I was singing. Mm. I'd get the words wrong. Right, right. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah. I've always admired that with just watching somebody on stage that can sing and play. <laughs> it's like, what's going out of that brain? It's, yeah, it's interesting. It's magical. People have that special. Yeah, I don't have it. I don't either. Yeah. Sadly, we'll take the next question. What was your inspiration behind creating the first online banking system for Wells Fargo? For the money, 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 yeah. <laughs> Go to the bank for the money. <laughs> um, a, a friend of mine, I'll, I'll tell you the 100% the true story. This guy that I used to work with had started working for the bank. And he said, it's awesome. We're going to build this online oh. banking system. It's going to be the world's greatest thing. And I, was, I had just come back from Japan where I had built a head-eye system that watched the ball bounce around a room, right? And I was going to just play music for a while. And I had just come back, and I was still in Santa Barbara, and he's in the Bay Area. He says, come up here and, and uh, do this thing. And I said, no, I don't want to. I just want to play music. He says, come on. I said, no. He says, we'll fly you up. You can hang out at the house for the weekend. We'll go party. It'll be great. I said, fine. I'll do your timeshare sales thing in order to hang out with you. <laughs> So, so I go in for the interview, and then the, the woman who interviewed me was the non-listener. She was a non-listener, mm -hmm. and she just had decided she was going to hire me no matter what. And, uh, and I, just, I, didn't, I was not happy. I didn't want to be there. I was surrounded by the bank, and people were wearing ties. I was not happy. And she said, so what's your usual rate? So I just tripled my usual rate. <laughs> and she said, Okay. <laughs> And then I realized two things right away. The first thing is, there are some things I will do for money. Right? Sure. <laughs> and the second thing was, man, have I been charging way too low. Right, right. Should have <laughs> said four times your rate. Exactly. So, so I ended up taking the, that gig. And then, I, and I swear to God, this is the truth. 
the guy that brought me up there went on vacation for oh, three months. Wow. <laughs> Bait and switch. <laughs> wow. I was like, that's cool. So then I started bulling the China shopping around inside the bank. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's a very political situation inside totally. these larger yeah, yeah, organizations. Yeah, yeah. And the, the guy that was sponsoring this whole project was kind of, he was pretty on edge because if it didn't work, you know, he's he screwed. was going to be gone. He's right. a senior VP. Yeah, you know? he's out. And I'm walking up to the database guy going, give me access to the banking information. You know? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so I learned a lot of lessons, but uh, yeah. But that's a, now that it's over, that's a, it's a nice feather in your cap. I mean, it was early it in was, that, in that very industry's life. And, and I learned a lot. I mean, I learned, you know, I was like, wow, there are no good tools for doing this kind of right. website. Right. And so then, and then in autumn of that, in uh, August of that year, I built a tool for doing that. Oh, so, nice. It's good. Good. So you got, you made some so that's money. my inspiration. <laughs> so, hey, occasionally in life, sometimes it's okay to have that. It's all right. It shouldn't be your sole motivation, that's for sure. Right. You'll never be happy if that's the case. Right. So what, tell me about Meta HTML. Was, was that in that same period that that's Linda that was doing her book? And is this mid-90s? What, what, what was going so on? So it was around that same period. And, um, I'm sorry, that casual reference. Linda started Lynda.com. It was purchased by LinkedIn for right. $1.3 or something. Right. Linda she wrote one of the first books on HTML programming. Yeah, yeah so... Uh, what had happened was I was working at the bank and, and, you know, we're writing software in C and C++. And then the designer comes over and says, gee, it would be better if that, you know, thing was two, uh, like two points darker. Mm. And then you'd go into your C++ program and change a number, you know. Right, it, right. it was very painful. And I thought, this whole thing is crazy. This is not the way people should do So this. there was no HTML editors or anything like there that? There was no HTML editors. There was nothing like that. Right. And, and in addition to that, um, the browsers were all different. Some browsers supported tables. Uh, other browsers did not. Right. Like, even that simple kind of thing. So what, and what would that so, mean? It would render on some computers and not on others? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it would be impossible. You, you couldn't have something that just worked across a bunch of browsers. Right, right. Um, so uh, I thought about that for a while, and then I realized, oh, I could write a language that's, that's kind of scheme-like. Um, and looks like HTML, so you could just write HTML, but you'd be able to do things like loop over stuff or open up a connection to a database and get some data and then stuff it into the page. The, all the things that you would do today in Ruby on Rails or right, right. even in PHP, um, but at that time there was nothing like did that. Did you commercialize that or you just put it out there for the, for the world? What so did I, you do? So I tried. So this is all 1995. In August, uh, we wrote that thing, and then um, Henry Minsky, Marvin Minsky's son, and Julie Minsky, the twin sister, and I uh, started a company, along with Mike Fredkin, to basically called Universal Access. We got the domain UA.com. Ah, did you sell it? <laughs> we did. Nice. We did about six years ago. Sweet. Yeah, it was good. Did United Artists buy it? Or? No, no. Yeah. no. But it worked out. It was a good investment. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah, we made more money off the domain name than we ever made doing any business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we built this company, Universal Access, to... to to sell this tool because everybody is trying to, it's the mid-90s, everybody wants right. to do the thing. And uh, two or three companies that I uh, know very well made hundreds of millions of dollars uh, using this to rapidly build their, build their thing. And then I used it to build something later. But we, the company wasn't very good. We were kind of green and didn't, weren't that smart about how to run a company. I didn't listen as well in meetings as I should have. Um, and I learned that lesson. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes you learn these things. Right. Well, good. Yeah. So let's jump way forward. So from the mid-90s to 07. So 07, yeah. you got involved in the um, open source voting system. Yeah. Um, I'd love to just hear your general thoughts on why you think that's an important issue. I mean, I think we can all 
we all have our own ideas why you might feel that way. But and then I'd also like to hear who who is really fighting that because it sounds like just to make mm. sense. Who the, there's always constituents that are going to fight something, right? Mm. So, so, so just your overall thoughts on why you think that's an important thing for you to put your time into, and then who's really behind it not happening quickly? In a, in a society that is even partially democratic, like our republic, um, the votes should be counted as cast, 100%. And I believe that the only way that can happen is if the entire process for how you vote and how they get counted and the chain of custody of the votes and all that is completely transparent and easily understood. If you're using proprietary software, that's a black box. And even here in Santa Barbara, you fill out a paper ballot and then you walk over to a machine and they slide it into a black box. Literally. <laughs> Literally, made by Diebold. And some software says, oh, don't worry, I counted your vote exactly the way you cast it. Mm-hmm. And you don't know whether that's true. Right. And that could be false because somebody's malicious, right? It could be false because somebody made a mistake. It could be false because that programmer came in that day and he had a hangover and he just copied pasted something from somewhere else and made a mistake in a variable name and nobody knows but it's all proprietary code and the number of people that can check that code and validate that it's good is the number of people that are paid by a proprietary company right. which is vanishingly small compared to the number of people that exist in the world that could look at the code on GitHub. And what incentive does a company that sells those machines to local municipalities have to say, oh guess what we made a mistake and it's, it, it's caused five elections to be wrong. I mean they have no incentive to to, to disclose anything that, that might have been wrong? Um, I will not use this platform to get into a deep discussion, but I will say that there is a website you can go to called myvoteismine.org, and there is a seven-minute video there that describes in great detail the types of issues um, that you might have seen in the 2016 election, and there's a pile of information about that and, and how that could be related to the uh, election systems that were used. And had we had... Um, open source election systems, completely transparent election systems, I think um, that the United States, the people of the United States would be much more confident in the outcome of the election. So I think most of us would agree that we're eventually going to get to that point, but it's going to take a while. So other than the people that make the machines, I understand they wouldn't want it. Who else is fighting it? Are the politicians fighting it? Is it uh, politicians aren't funny except as they're being lobbied by the people who have lots of money that don't, you know, that make those machines because there's money in selling these machines. I don't know that there's a, you know, secret cabal of people who no. like to have a bunch of machines out there that no. they can control and modify the boat. I, I, it's, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah, I don't believe in cabals. But, I'm not, yeah. But I'm I do believe in people wanting to protect their own bacon. Uh-huh. I think that right. happens a lot. Yeah. I think that happens a lot. So uh, I think that uh, all, the, all the people in Congress who are voting against this or mm-hmm. who are saying, it's okay, that proprietary company can simply let somebody look at the code, and that's kind of like it's open source. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing. It doesn't have the same results. So, it also the, keeps the cost of our elections very high. We could reduce who the benefits co- by that the, or from that? The proprietary companies, okay. companies producing election systems. Right. The, the taxpayer loses. Are the politicians saying, <clears throat> excuse me, we agree that it makes sense, but we want to study it more? I mean, that's kind of one of their tactics, right, is to kick the can down the road. And- the, the number of, the number of discuss- I've had the privilege of, of discussing this with some sitting senators and, and their experts. And some of their experts are, are truly experts in software. And then you say, you realize that if it's open source, tens of thousands of eyeballs can be looking at that. And that can be better for security. It's like and blockchain they, in that regard, right? And they say, well, they might find the bugs and exploit them. And if it's a secret, maybe they won't find the bugs. Wow. And then I point out 
only the good guys won't look at your software if you keep it proprietary. The bad guys are still going to hack into your systems and look at that software, right. find the bugs, and exploit them. And right. in fact, that's what happens. That's why Russia was able to get into our, our voting systems. We didn't have some nice guy. I didn't hack our voting systems. Right. <laughs> right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I can understand that concern, but it seems like when you explain it, yeah. That they would they would see that side of it too. I, keep I just try, think I keep trying. You can try too. Well, part of it's inertia too. I just think and change is scary and you know it's this idea of what if if, if we make this change under my watch and something happens I'm going to look bad as a politician. I think yeah. all those things are happening. Um, I, it will happen. I mean, our, I hope so. You know, the folks in here, their children are going to be voting on their smartphone <laughs> and go. Really, you guys waited in line? Like, hold on. Okay, I voted. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's going to take a bit longer. Yes. Um, we'll take uh, one more student question. Graduating, graduating from such a prestigious school, was there more opportunities for you to do what you truly were passionate about in the sense of having more resources or in having more doors open because you graduated from MIT? And what are your habits that made you so successful? So to clarify, I did not graduate from MIT. Okay, so I want to make sure that's kind of clear. But yes, the time I spent at MIT and the relationships that I made at MIT have been the stepping stones for almost all the important things I've done in my life. I, I traveled around the world. In the 90s, I spent the entire 90s basically traveling around the world and doing different things um, because of the people I knew at MIT. And I would say, hey, where are you now? Oh, you're in Japan? I'll come live in Japan for three Oh, where are you? You're in France? I'll go to France. You know? And um, it was those relationships with those very smart people right. um, and the fact that they had a chance to work with me in a situation that was like at school. You know, that was... Uh, that was very important. So, yeah, I think the relationships that you make in school are extremely important. Um, and I think it's this idea of curating your peer group, right? I mean, that doesn't mean you have to be uh, Machiavellian about your friends. You can have no. just friends just for the sake of having friends. Oh, but you want to make sure, especially professionally, you start curating those people that you hang out with professionally. And, and again, that you're learning from them, that you can help them, and then hopefully in turn they can help you at some point. I think it's important that you have the relationship with each person that you know that, that is appropriate to, to have with that person. So not every person I meet is my girlfriend. Right. Right. Hopefully. And, and not every person I meet is my business partner. But right. hopefully there right. are some people who fall into the business partner category. Yep. So you're obviously extremely shy and withdrawn. I, um, I have that problem, yeah. So, so I'm you're... also a fitness expert. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, must be the light. Must be the light. Um, TV puts on 100 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we have you always been this way? Because I, I mean, a lot of tech folks aren't quite as gregarious or humorous as you. Yeah. Is this something you developed? And it, if, no, I'm just a loudmouth man. Well, <laughs> come on, man, give me something. Here. Is there something? Is there any advice you can give to folks? Because that's one thing I've noticed is young people. You know, there's kind of two camps. There, are, there are the folks that have no fear and they'll talk to anybody about anything. And they're a smaller camp than the other kids that feel like, well, I don't know. You, you did say that you grew up in a family where you had to be a little aggressive to have your voice heard. That might have helped. But do you have? Is there anything? Also to, you, get, also to get more chicken. To get more food, right? <laughs> Got to be quick. It, it, I mean, I always recommend Toastmasters for people to present. Get up and present, and especially if you're uncomfortable, you don't like it. Anything that makes you uncomfortable, and you don't like to do, that will help you grow. Doing the things you're really comfortable doing over and over again don't help you. That's true. I agree with that 100%. That you shouldn't. I, I think it's really interesting. I, my, my advice is kind of get out of yourself. You know, um, people who 
people who kind of um, are extremely self-conscious, one thing they might want to think about is maybe everybody else isn't really thinking about you. Exactly. Right? And so it's okay to be a little bit self-conscious. Oh, I have a pimple today. I'm not happy about that. I, you know, whatever. But it's, if you're focused on on re- achieving a result, you know, then you kind of leave yourself behind. You know, yeah. it's like when you're having a conversation with your best friend, you don't think about what your hair looks like. You just talk to your friend. And that can really be true, I think, in most conversations or, or even in a forum like this. Right. If you're just kind of interested in getting the information out. And, and it really, really resonates what you said as well about not everyone's thinking about you. I think that's also somewhat, when you're younger a little bit, you're a bit more right. self-conscious. Um, but really, the world's got other things on their mind right. other than what your hair looks like today. Right. So let me, let me end with this one. So you've, got, you've obviously had a very storied career. Um, I, I did laugh when you said, you, sorry, back up, when you said that when, you're, when your build is the GNU guy, all these techie people show up. I just yeah. want to see what that audience looks like, right? <laughs> playing music and they're all like, could I ask you about the code? Yeah, that's, um, that's what it's like. So, so the, of all your professional accomplishments, which one are you most proud of and which one do you think will have the biggest impact? And maybe you haven't done it yet. Wow. Yeah, so those are two different things. So uh, I'm, I, uh, I've had the good fortune, I've had the good fortune to um, play music with Ronnie Laws, who's a well-known musician. Um, and I, I'm proud that I was able to accomplish that in the same context as I'm able to do this computer science thing. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm also proud of the work I did at the Free Software Foundation, but not as much of the bash shell as of these other tools I wrote, this read line library and history library. It's kind of the way people interact on a command line with everything now. And, and not, so it's not just for shells, it's for anything you type at. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind, of, I'm kind of proud of that. But my, my uh, biggest accomplishment is um, my children. Awesome. There's just nothing more, more great than having been nearby while they became the people that they are. Right. That's yeah. wonderful. What a wonderful note to end on. Thank you, Brian. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.